Okay, so shkoch to everybody for uh, for coming. Uh, so we are doing the second principle. If you remember from uh, from last week, the second principle has to relate to the unity of God. So this is the fact that uh, that God is one, and that uh, that everything sort of uh, culminates or comes together uh, in God. And even though there are times when there are contradictory indicators that, uh, that there are things about God which is good, uh, uh, that the name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke name, that of Chesed, which seems to go in one direction, and then there's the name of Elokeinu or Elokim, which seems to connote a different aspect of, of God's personality. Nonetheless, we see all of that as being a uh, unified into one, uh, into one being, which we know, uh, which we uh, refer to as, as Hashem. And everything are not uh, uh, everything which uh, we talk about is all going to be a part of that larger whole. They're not separate parts, but they're all uh, considered to be that uh, that one part, the Hashem Echad. That even though, uh, in some regards, it's Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Chesed Elokeinu Gvura or Din or Judgment. Nonetheless, Hashem Echad, they come together as as Echad. Okay, so that I think is where we left off. Uh, um, uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday, last week, it seems like just yesterday, and uh, and so now uh, one of the questions which uh, which uh, which uh, commentators ask about this is that these two principles, the first two principles which we have, one having to do with the existence of God, that was the uh, the first of them, and then the one which we're studying now, which is the unity of God. So the unity of God is essentially a sub principle of the existence of God. In other words, that if we're going to go ahead and we're going to assume that the first principle requires and mandates that we become familiar with different parts of Hashem's existence, all the different parts of Hashem's existence, to know that his existence is essential to everything else in the universe, and not in the, and Hashem's existence is not dependent upon anything else in the universe. So if you explore all of those things, so inevitably you would reach the conclusion that Hashem Echad, that there's a unity of God, that all of this stuff comes together in uh, in, in 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 Hashem, in this uh, amazing unity, which is uh, difficult for us to be able to uh, to grasp. But if the second principle is essentially a subcategory of the first principle, so why does the Rambam go ahead and divide them into two separate principles? Why does he identify one they refer to as the existence of God, and then the second one having to do with the unity of God? So that is the uh, the question. So Rav Yaakov Weinberg, uh, as we've talked about, the Rashiva of Neri Yisrael, who uh, really from a series of lectures, they put together his commentary on the 13 principles. So he says that really the reason why the Rambam goes out and emphasizes the second principle, the unity of God as a separate independent principle is because the this second principle emphasizes something which needs to be emphasized very strongly, which the first principle, although one may stumble upon it and one may come across it in their uh, contemplation of the existence of God, the first principle, which is the existence of God, the Rambam felt that it was, uh, that it was essential to go ahead and emphasize this second point about the unity of God, specifically because of our tendency to go ahead and think that um, uh, um, that maybe there's something besides God which exists in this in this world. In other words, 
that um, that um, the what the Rambam was trying to emphasize over here was trying to negate the the Gemara would Gemara word would be laafuke, but what he was trying to negate or was trying to emphasize is not true. Is the uh, the way Rav Weinberg phrased it is the subtle influences of polytheism that could creep into our mindset. So polytheism in terms of the belief in multiple gods. So this is something which uh, the Rambam was very sensitive to. Is uh, let me go even earlier. Chazal were very sensitive to. The Rambam followed through with that uh, that sensitivity from his perspective in the experiences of his life. And it's something which even in our times, uh, people have a tendency as much as we would be very dismissive. If anybody were, if you were to be asked, if we were to ask uh, any of our friends or any of the people that uh, we daven with, we go to show with, uh, does anybody believe in polytheism? So everybody would certainly go ahead and say an immediate no. But the truth is, is that it's difficult to go ahead and in reality, it's difficult sometimes to escape some of those uh, beliefs or some of those perspectives just because the experiences we have in life are difficult for us to be able to comprehend and it's difficult for us to be able to fit neatly into a box and to be able to explain everything as emanating from a single unified God without different parts. In other words, that when we uh, experience or when we observe evil in this world, so evil is something which is one of the most difficult things for people to uh, comprehend, if we ever comprehend them uh, at all. That when we're told that God is loving and God is caring and he is a parent who only looks out for our best and nothing that God does would ever be, would ever be uh, bad. So uh, and wants nothing more. The whole purpose of creation, like the Ramchal says at the beginning of Messiah Susharm, was really just to provide us with pleasure to give us the opportunity to be able to connect with God and to give us a pleasurable, uh, pleasurable experience. So all of that is wonderful as long as things are going well in our lives. But as soon as tragedy or pain or difficulty or trauma or anything of that like occurs, suddenly we're left, um, scratching our heads would be, uh, would be an understatement as far as that is concerned. So we don't know where exactly we should process that. Where exactly is evil going to fit into our perception of God being loving? When we think of, uh, of loving, we're thinking kumbaya type of moment, just love everybody and get along with everybody and everybody you meet, give them a hug or a kiss or a high five, or nowadays you just give them sort of a nod or something like that. But, uh, but it's, uh, you're gonna get along with, uh, with everybody over there. And, uh, but when things are not working that way, so how do we attribute these bad events to a loving God. Uh, and this is something which, you know, uh, you know people who uh, end up getting uh, uh, diseases over the course of their lifetime, sometimes even fatal diseases or fatal conditions which, which they have. So it's difficult for us to be able to assign that and to be able to attribute that to the God who is supposed to be a loving, caring God who wants nothing more than the absolute best for us. And when we observe, like uh, Chazal's conundrum, Moshe Rabbeinu's conundrum, of Tzadik Viralo, you see somebody who is righteous and they're experiencing bad things in their life. And then you see uh, Russia Vitovlo, we see the wicked who are prospering and seemingly are having all sorts of success in their lives. 
So this begs the question, so how can we go ahead and assign this and understand this from the perspective of a loving, caring God? And this isn't something, this isn't the question which is unique to Judaism. Any belief system, any God-based uh, belief system is going to struggle with these questions of Sadik Viralo and Rasha Vitovo, why the righteous seem to suffer when they do suffer, and why the wicked seem to prosper when they prosper, and why all of the bad things which happen in this world. So uh, how are we going to go ahead and explain how this uh, this happens? So uh, if one you know looks around at different belief systems, if one makes a, a study of how these things are, are managed, so uh, there are really uh, two uh, conclusions that people reach, two basic conclusions that people reach when they observe all of the, uh, the difficulties and all of the pain which happens in the world. And one is to say that uh, one, is, uh, the one extreme response is, it must be that there's no God. If God, by definition, if you're telling me God is loving, and yet we see all of this suffering and pain and trauma which people experience in this world, so it must be that there can't be a God. It has to be the conclusion because otherwise none of this stuff would uh, would happen, and that's one conclusion that uh, that uh, that people draw that uh, from their experiences they conclude that there's no such thing as is God, or they will maintain the belief that God is loving and God is caring and He is like a parent who wants nothing more than our uh, our well-being and goodness in our lives. Evil happens to be a force which is outside of God's domain. And therefore, when we observe evil, which is taking place, so this is not God doing it. This is some other uh, type of force which exists in the, in, in the universe, which is on equal footing or somewhat parallel footing to, uh, to God. And it's that other force which is bringing about the, uh, the, the evil. Now, obviously, from our perspective, what the Rambam is emphasizing when he says that we have to believe in the unity of God, he's telling us that both of these conclusions, that either there's no such thing as God, and evil is really just the doing of mankind, or there is a caring and loving God, but evil comes from a force which exists outside of God, either one of those two things are going to diminish and detract from this principle of the unity of God. And that's why Rev Weinberg says that it's so important for the Rambam to go ahead and stress this point, make it into a completely se uh, separate and independent principle because of our, the struggle which everybody has to go ahead and process the concept of evil, the concept of bad which exists in this, in this world. And therefore, this second principle tells us that even though it may be difficult to process, it may be difficult to believe and understand where the evil and the pain and the suffering is coming from, we still believe that this is something which ultimately is going to, it's going to find its source from, uh, from God. So in Christianity, for example, so at least in Catholicism, so it's uh, that the evil is, comes from a fallen angel fallen angel somehow comes out of heaven. I don't know why, uh, why he misses the, uh, the stair or something like that, or misses the elevator, but there's a fallen angel who now is, stands in opposition to God. And evil, anything which is evil, Satan or the devil, whichever name you're going to go ahead that they would, uh, they would use. So that is now a force, Satan or the devil is now a force which is completely independent of God and is uh, running in opposition to God. 
and therefore bad things we're going to attribute to that that source, the source of the devil, the source of Satan, something along those lines. Again, those some of the, uh, that type of uh, terminology in all things which are good. So they are going to come from a good and caring and loving God. Uh, if one uh, one could go through shas as uh, as people here uh, you know on this uh, in this class have done, and there are many halachas which. If one doesn't uh, uh, understand or know the historical context, so it seems a little bit uh, far-fetched or it seems a little bit uh, um, uh, overly cautious, but it's just because we are not in that time and place when these enactments were made. But in the time of Chazal, in the time when the uh, Mishnayis were being composed and written and when the Gemara was being composed and written and edited and whatnot, so Zoroastrianism, was a um, a very strong uh, religious uh, uh, religion which existed in the world at that time, at that time, and specifically in that region. In Zoroastrianism is that belief in two different gods. There's a good god and a bad god. The good god and the bad god are fighting with with, with one another. They're battling one another for uh, control over the universe, control over people and whatnot. And it wasn't uncommon for Jews to go ahead and uh, back then when you would go off the derech, the term that we use now, so back then when people would, they would give up their Yiddishkeit and whatnot, so very often they would end up in Zoroastrianism. They would end up in that uh, belief system. So there are many halachas which appear in Shas and make their way into, into Shulchan Aruch, which are specifically, as we said before, using that term la'afuke, are to negate the beliefs of Zoroastrianists. So for example, if you remember, I think it's the Mishnayis in Megillah. So it says over there that somebody who says Shema, Shema, they repeat Shema twice, either one word at a time, Shema, Shema, Yisrael, Yisrael, Hashem, Hashem, or they repeat the whole Pasuk twice, Machlogus in the Gemara. But somebody who says Shema twice, so such a person should be silenced. Why is it necessary to silence a person who says Shema twice? What's wrong with declaring the unity of God twice? So the Gemara says, because this may be related to somebody who's accepting upon himself, Shtei Rishuyos. Shtei Rishuyos means two different gods. That one has a belief that there is a good God and a bad God. And therefore, in prayer, one has to address both of those gods. You don't want to get on the bad side of either one of those, uh, those two gods. And therefore, they would go out of their way to say that the repetition of Shema is something which is considered to be such so dangerous because it, 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 it hints to us that maybe the person who does this isn't simply stuttering, but they're actually believed in two different gods, and therefore we would go ahead and we would silence them. Mel, was your hand uh, going up? How does this relate to uh, Islam? In the Quran, there's a lot of talk about Satan, and I don't know whether they are talking about Satan as, as a, uh, uh, an agent of God or a sort of independent, do you know? Um, so I don't know. Um, it's been a long time since I did anything. Uh, you know, it's been a good uh, 20 years or so since I did it, uh, more than the 25, uh, at least 25 years since I did anything in, uh, you know, uh, some sort of formal comparative religion, uh, religious uh, studies. Uh, so I don't remember too much, uh, too much about that. Okay. You know, what exactly their, uh, their belief is. But uh, in how, how they, whether they believe in a unified God or they also believe that there's a force which exists. We, we have a, a, a Satan. We also have a Satan and a Yetzirah. But the Satan and the Yetzirah are not outside of God's domain. We believe that they are, the, any assignments which they have 
are met, uh, you have to get, uh, you know, approval from, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. So even when, you know, Satan or the Yitzhahar wanted to challenge Eov, wanted to have that opportunity to see how far he could push Eov and see if push comes to shove, he would remain a believer or not with all the suffering that he, uh, that he went through. So he, wasn't, he couldn't do so without getting permission from God. So everything ultimately has to, we believe that there are forces uh, which are trying to push us towards Bayad, but they're not independent of God. Somehow they're going to fit into the God system. But Islam specifically, so I don't know what their perception of, uh, uh, of, that, uh, of that is. Um, right, so the, uh, so the Zoroastrianists, so they are, so, uh, so, so as we said, they believe in a good God and a bad God. I don't think there's too much Zoroastrianism which exists nowadays, but I think there are still some remnants of that. I think there still are some Zoroastrian uh, houses of worship somewhere around the, the world, which, uh, which uh, there's still some, uh, some practitioners. Now, uh, certainly if we were, once again, if we were to be asked, uh, do we believe in the Christian idea of a fallen angel and that Satan or the devil is a force which exists outside of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we would certainly say no. And if we were to be asked whether or not we have Zoroastrian beliefs of a good God and a bad God, not a fallen angel, which has now uh, went rogue on God, but uh, from the very outset, there were two gods, one good and one bad, and that's how we're going to explain everything. So we would certainly say no. We would certainly uh, uh, denounce any association or any belief whatsoever in these types of, of things. But uh, it's still when we observe or when we experience suffering, we are left um, uh, wondering how exactly we're going to be able to reconcile this with our loving and caring God. And therefore the tendency is to try and we would like to maintain our belief of a loving and caring God and therefore, what the, the, the direction that the mind will often go is to attribute this to some other source. This obviously can't come from God, because God would not go ahead and do things uh, such, such as this. And therefore, it must come from, uh, from somewhere, somewhere else. You know, in our, uh, in our generation, essentially, the Holocaust is probably the biggest challenge to that, uh, the biggest challenge to any believer. How can a Baruch Hu, if he's a loving and caring God, and he considers the Jewish people to be his children, his, uh, his beloved children. So how could he allow any of this, uh, th this to happen? It's something which is inconceivable. And therefore, it's, uh, we, uh, we, we struggle to go ahead and to, uh, to, uh, to, go, uh, to attribute that to anything other than the Nazis. So we'd rather point our finger at the evil Nazis. We'll say Yemach Shemam V'Zichram as many times that we can that Hashem should blot out in the, their, their name and their, uh, their memory uh, altogether, rather than somehow connect what happened with God. But the truth is, is that uh, our belief system says that nothing is going to be able to happen without God's, uh, without God's uh, at the very least, approval. And, uh, but that just begs the question more, so then how do we understand it? If it had to have come from God, then how are we going to be able to explain it? How are we going to be able to uh, process the evil which, which we observe? So it's important to know that there's no way we have it, that, not, that, that in our current state, there's no way to answer that question. 
Uh, I think I've mentioned a few times over the years, but uh, now is the appropriate time to, uh, to repeat it if, uh, if I did, and you've heard it already. But uh, Rav Hutner points out, uh, when uh, back, I think in the 70s, when there was some, uh, somewhat of a debate going on as far as how to uh, interpret the Holocaust and how to uh, understand the, the Holocaust which occurred, so Rav Hutner's approach was as follows. He said that, uh, once again, for those uh, Dafyomi people, so everybody knows that those Masechtas in Shas, which don't have Pirish Rashi, let's say Nidarim, we don't do Pirish Rashi, we do the Ran. And there are certain other Masechtas where we get to the end of Baba Basra, most of Baba Basra really. So we have the Rashbam rather than, uh, than Rashi. So those Masechtas, we don't actually have Rashi available to us. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody off, but after Psachim, we'll be doing Shkalim, which is Yushami, which certainly doesn't have a Pirish Rashi. So you get to those Masechtas, everybody knows that those Masechtas are much harder than the Masechtas for which we have Rashi. Why is that so? So he says, because it's impossible for a person to go through Shas without Rashi's assistance. He is the ultimate crutch which we have to go ahead and assist us in being able to make sense of, uh, uh, make sense of what appears in most of the 2,711 Dapim of Shas. So says Rav Hutner, we have a principle. Some places they sing it on, the, on, the, on Simcha's Torah, but it's a phrase, Yisrael v'oraisa v'kud shabrichu chadu. That the Yisrael, the Jewish people, v'oraisa and the Torah, v'kud shabrichu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu are one. So Rav Hutner says, just like the oraisa, just like the Torah part of that, is something which is almost indecipherable without Purish Rashi, we can't make headway out of it. We, it's very difficult to make sense out of it. And if you try and learn Gemara without Rashi, so it, you're, you're prone to make mistakes and end up with the wrong pshat. So just like that's an experience which we've had with Orisa, with the Torah, that learning it without Pirish Rashi, you're, uh, one will inevitably make mistakes. So if Hutner said his chap was, the same thing is true with regards to the study of Yisrael. If somebody tries to study Jewish history and they try and give pshat in terms of what happened in Jewish history and why things happened in Jewish history, absent Pirish Rashi, if we don't have Rashi to go ahead and guide us and provide commentary to make sure that we end up with proper pshat, so inevitably we're going to make a mistake. We're not going to be able to interpret it properly. And therefore, it's not even worth the endeavor to try and interpret it because there's no Rashi to explain it. So Rav Hutner says that anything which is happening in Jewish history, certainly those things which are post, uh, post-Chazal, Chazal had the ability to go ahead and interpret history for us. If you remember on, on like Purim time, I talk a lot about uh, some of the Gemaras where they try and figure out why the Purim story happened. Generations later, Amorai, uh, Tanaim and their students try and explain why the Purim story happened, what was the cause of it, and what was the sin that they committed to, uh, to bring it on. And even then, so they were prone to make errors, people as great as those who are the, the students of Tanaim. So even they were prone to make errors because it's so difficult to go ahead and, and interpret. So certainly anything which is post-Chazal, so we are uh, re- really grasping at straws. It's just throwing a dart to, at a wall and hoping that something's going to stick and wherever it sticks, that's how we're going to go ahead and give shot. But it's not accurate. So if Hunter said that we have a principle of faith that everything which happens comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, everything which happens ultimately is good, 
what is the pshat in that? How do we explain that? How do we apply that? That we have no idea. Not only do we have no idea, but it's not even worth the endeavor because we don't have Rashi to go ahead and make sure that we get the, the proper pshat. And getting wrong pshat on something like this could very often lead to heresy. And therefore he was opposed to trying to give any explanation whatsoever as to it was this group's fault or that group's fault or it was because of this sin or because of that sin. When all those things which people do even nowadays as far as what things which happen in the world, people are always pointing fingers at the other group. It's always the other group's fault as to why tragedies happen in this, in this, in, in this world. Uh, one of my uh, close uh, uh, friends and, and mentors uh, 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 I think very astutely observed that when tragedies occur and somebody gets up and says that it's for this reason, this reason is always something which is characteristic of the other group. Nobody gets up and says, we did something wrong and this is why this happened. They never point the finger at themselves. It's always finger pointing somewhere else that it's their fault in their sin, in their belief, in their practices which brought this. People very rarely, if ever, do they go ahead and they point towards themselves and take responsibility for what, uh, for what happens. So this is, a, this is why this is a, a very difficult uh, principle of belief to go ahead and understand uh, because our tendency is when we are, uh, when tragedy occurs, uh, when tragedy occurs, so our youngest uh, uh, member, uh, so when tragedy occurs, so one of the ways which we, uh, which we try and uh, process it is if we, we can understand it, so understanding something gives a certain level of shlita. It gives a certain power or control over it. If I can explain it, so then I could then make sure that not to allow this to happen again, or I could plan to make sure how to respond and to avoid this in the future. That's true if I can explain something. The difficult thing is when we can't explain it. So that leaves us feeling helpless and feeling out of control and feeling that there's chaos in the world and nobody wants to go ahead and have the experience of saying that there's bad things which are happening completely outside of my control. It's complete chaos and there's nothing I can do to prevent it. That doesn't make us feel any better. It makes us feel worse. And that's why everybody has a ten tendency to try and explain it. If I could just explain it, I have control over it. My mind has grasped what's going on. And then it's no longer as, as dangerous because if I could understand it, so then I could, as we said, I could go ahead and I could plan uh, uh, accordingly. But this is a, 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 a tremendous level of bitachon, tremendous level of belief that we have to have in HaKadosh Baruch Hu in order to be able to, uh, to make this, uh, to make this, uh, to be able to take this leap of faith, to be able to believe wholeheartedly that this, that this is coming from God even though it's something which is so difficult to, uh, to explain. Uh, if you remember, the Gemara talks about, the Gemara in uh, uh, the, the end of Brachos talks about that it says that just like we make a bracha when good things occur, there's a bracha of hatov hametiv, God is good and does good. So that's an easy bracha. You find out that you win the lottery, you make the bracha hatov hametiv. You go ahead and you hear some other uh, good news. You know, somebody was, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the news happens uh, to be, you see a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, whatever it is. So uh, on the occasion of good news, so we say the bracha tova metiv. The Mishnah says, just like we make a bracha for good things which happen, so we also make a bracha when bad things happen. The, the, Gemara, you, the Mishnah uses the term kishem, that the same way, the exact same way, and almost the exact same mindset that one has to have 
when they say the bracha for good news, that's the mindset and the feeling which they're supposed to have when something bad happens. That, as we know, is the bracha of Diana Emes. Said most often upon the occasion of, uh, of the death of a relative. So the response is, Baruch Dayan Emes, or if it's one's relative and one is tearing Kriya at the, at the Leviah, so you say with Shemel Malchus, Baruch Atah Shemel Kinu Malcholam, Dayan Emes. But those two brachas, so that, not the two brachas, but the brach of Dayan Emes, so that is a bracha which captures essentially this second principle, this second principle of faith, of the unity of God, and just like when good things happen, I attribute them to God, and I say, thank God, Baruch Hashem, I'm so happy, I'm going to give Tov Lahodos Hashem, we're about to enter into a yantif of, of Thanksgiving. So we're just like when good things happen, so we, we don't hesitate to go ahead and attribute it to God. We don't have an issue with attributing that to God. So Chazal tell us that when bad things happen, we also have to do the same thing. The challenge is, is that it's very difficult to go ahead and assign the notion that bad things happening is coming from God because it flies in the face of the principle which we are which we have, which is that everything that God does is good. And God is completely loving and more loving than one could possibly imagine how, uh, how, lo- how, how loving he is. But that is, that bracha is a bracha of belief that, uh, uh, that uh, although I don't understand it, I appreciate the fact that God is the dayam ha'emes. God is the judge of truth. And if this is something which he decided, so I don't understand the truth of it, but I'm absolutely confident that he understands the truth of it and the necessity for it in the role that it's going to play. And as an expression of faith, we say that bracha of Diana Emes. Rav Hutner points out, or it's not, I shouldn't say Rav Hutner over here, it's, the Gemara says, the Gemara Psachim, we'll get to it in about seven weeks or so, I think. Uh, the Gemara in Psachim says, there, when we say at the end of Aleinu, we know from Aleinu, uh, it will be at on that day, that Hashem will be one and His name will be one. So the Gemara asks the question, what does that mean? What does that mean? On that day, Hashem will be one and His name will be one. You mean nowadays Hashem is not one and His name is not one? Nowadays, there's two gods. Nowadays, there's two names for God. How could it possibly be that nowadays that God is that is God changing from now to uh, to the this uh, future era? So the Gemara says God isn't changing at all. What's changing is our perception of God, because in this world, the world that we find ourselves in pre uh, final redemption era, so we perceive God in two different ways. We see God as the Tova Metiv the God who is good and does good. And then on the other hand, other uh, um, uh, events occur, other things occur, and we say the bracha of Dayan Emes. So we see God on the one hand as Tova Metiv, and other times we see God as the Dayan Emes. But La'asid Lavo says the Gemara, in the future, everything Kulo HaTova Metiv, everything will be understood immediately that it's going to be for the good and nothing which happens will be perceived as Diane Emes. The bracha will go out of style. The bracha won't be necessary anymore because at that point, we're going to have the clarity and the, the understanding of how everything which happens is ultimately tova metiv. And there's not going to be this time delay in between the what we perceive now as being bad 
and the belief that ultimately we'll be able to see that it's good. And that's why Chazal incorporated for us, they told us that one of the essential things that a person should accustom himself to say, two variations of it, but essentially is, everything which HaKadosh Baruch Hu does is for the good. And this is what we say on tragic, uh, tragic occasions, on, 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 on difficult uh, occasions. Or we could say the phrase, Gamzu Latova. If you remember also from uh, from uh, Yushas people that there was a person of Akiva's Rebbe was Nachum Ish Gamzu, that was the name by which he was known. Nachum Ish Gamzu, the last part of his name Gamzu was really a nickname which he acquired because he was accustomed to say Gamzu Latova. He was the original originator of that uh, of that phrase, and the Gemara recounts the story where all sorts of bad things happened to him, and he kept saying as a matter of of belief. Gamzu Latova, Gamzu Latova, all of this is ultimately going to be for the good. Right now, it seems like it's a bad thing, but Gamzu Latova, this is also something which is, which is going to be good. And he merited in his lifetime to be able to see how those things which he saw initially as bad ultimately ended up being something which, would, uh, which was a benefit. Nobody gave him a place to sleep in town, so he had to sleep out of town. The town was attacked overnight. The uh, the wind blew out his candles, so the enemy couldn't see that he was there. Uh, that his roosters were eaten up, I think, or his animals were eaten up by uh, by uh, by uh, by uh, by predators, so that also they wouldn't make noise in the middle of the night. And that way, he was able to uh, to uh, remain safe and unscathed from what otherwise would have been his uh, his, his demise. So he merited to see that. But that's a phrase which all of us are supposed to incorporate into our mindset and into our thinking. And one of the ways we do that is by verbalizing it. That when things happen that we don't understand, things uh, happen which appear to not emanate from a loving, caring God. So that's when we say, that this is all for the best. And there's, there's no way that it's, it's going to be something, it's going to be something which is, which is different. Um, now, um, that being said, so there is um, there is uh, one thing which uh, uh, one other point which is uh, which is essential to uh, to emphasize over here, and that is uh, understanding if we assume that evil, like we mentioned, that evil in the Satan and the Sahara doesn't exist outside of God's plan, that whatever is taking place is all ultimately part of uh, God's plan that the Sahara isn't going to be able to tempt somebody or isn't going to be able to do something without God's approval. So why does evil exist in this world? Why, if God is a loving and caring God, not to explain any particular event of Jewish history, any particular event which has happened or tragedy which has happened, but just in general terms, why did God create evil? If he's a loving, caring God, you are, if, you, if we were to ask any of you that you have all the resources available to you, and we want you to go ahead and create a loving, caring environment for your child. So what would you do? You give them all good. You'd, they'd be completely protected from any uh, any potential harm. And you just give them, you'd shower them with good, 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 good. No homework and plenty of Shabbos cereal during the week and pizza all the time. And you'd give them all the things that, the, that they, they want all, all of the time. And they wouldn't experience anything which is bad. So how do we understand if God is, in fact, which he is, a caring and loving God, so why does evil exist in this world? Where did it, uh, it come from? So here the Ramchal tells us that ultimately the reason, the purpose of, of creation 
from God's perspective was to be able to provide mankind with the greatest pleasure which exists, using the phrase, in the universe. So God wanted, God is such a caring and loving God. He's such a chesed-oriented uh, God that he wanted to make sure to give mankind the opportunity to have good. But to have the ultimate good, it can't be something which is given to us without us earning it. That's what's referred to in Kabbalistic Sfarim, uh, in the, in the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Mukubalim. They refer to it as Nama de Kisufa. Nun hey mem aleph, nama is bread. It's the bread of humiliation. So nobody likes to get a handout. Nobody likes to be given something for free. We have this uh, in, 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 um, internal uh, drive to want to earn our way through life. We want to go ahead and put in the effort. We want to earn our way. We want to, like Chazal say, that people would rather have one measure of their own through their own efforts than 10 measures that they get from somebody else. So ultimately, if God created us and immediately thrust us or threw us into Gan Eden without us having to do anything, so that would be embarrassing. We don't really deserve any of this uh, this good. He created us just to, uh, to, uh, to put us into Gan Eden. So without having earned it, it would not have the same meaning and it would actually be counterproductive, it would actually be humiliating. It's like when you go ahead and you give, uh, you know, nowadays with, uh, you know, the kids playing sports, everybody gets a trophy. So everybody knows that the kids who did terrible, they were last place, they get a trophy also, they know it's, it's a joke. They're embarrassed by the trophy and they're not proud of the fact that they earned the trophy when they got, you know, the trophy for best losing effort or, you know, whatever it's going to say on the, uh, on the trophy. It's not something that they're proud of. It's something that they're, uh, they're, they're embarrassed of because they know they didn't earn it. So Baruch Hu, in, order for us, in order for us to be able to earn it, so that means that by definition, we have to have choices. And the choices are going to be that we have to be able to choose the way of God as opposed to the way not of God. We have to choose to follow God's command rather than the, uh, the, to be tempted to turn away from God's command. And this is from the very beginning, from Adam and Chava. This is the one, as we say, besides don't make a mess, but from the very origin, so there was one essential choice which they had. Are they going to follow God's restriction, his prohibition, don't eat from that tree? Or are they going to ignore God's uh, prohibition and they're going to pursue their own self-interest or the evil which was being presented to them by the Nachash at that time? And that was the one struggle, that was the one choice that they had to follow God or not follow God. If they had followed God on that original heir of Shabbos, so that first Shabbos would have been Yom Shekul Shabbos, they would have gone into Gan Eden and they would have earned all things good and the whole world would have been set straight uh, uh, for eternity because they had chosen God correctly, but by not choosing, so then they made this enormous mess an enormous mess, which involves death and which involves mankind for thousands of years, trying to clean up that mess and get ourselves back to that state where we are choosing God over not following God. And we could go ahead and we can earn for ourselves that portion in the, in the world to come. So the function of evil on very simplistic terms, just understand it in general terms, is there because the only way we're going to be able to earn something through our Bechira, through our free choice, is to have uh, an equal choice. If the choice is not equal, it's not really free choice. Uh, as all of you know, if you were to offer me a fish burger or a burger buddy, so what am I gonna choose? 
free choice. Anybody could choose, you know, either one of those two things, but there's no doubt in anybody's mind here that given those choices, I'm going burger buddy 10 times out of 10. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not even close. I know you're shocked, but it's not, it's not even close that that's what's, uh, what's going to happen because there's no way I'm going to choose that. So that's not a fair choice to give me a choice between fish and the, uh, you know, uh, do you want the prime rib or do you want the salmon? Don't even ask the question. It's 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 so obvious. So in order for it to be uh, in order for it to be a real choice, the good and the evil have to be equally appealing. And in order for that to exist, that's the function that evil has. Is evil is going to be that term that we use, or the Sahara is the force, is what the the term that we use for the force which is there to make our bechira real bechira. To make it a real choice, which we have to, uh, which which we which we have to face, and hopefully which we're going to choose correctly in order to follow Hashem rather than not follow Hashem, to correct the error of Adam Arishon, which was to not follow Hashem, and to go ahead and to uh, and to uh, to choose uh, choose correctly. So that is, uh, as I said, in the most general terms, that's why evil exists in this world. It doesn't explain any evil event. It doesn't explain any tragic event which happens. It doesn't explain things of, uh, of suffering and of trauma and all of the things of, of, of that sort, but it tells us why it, was, why it exists somewhere in the universe. It exists in the universe in order to be able to give us free choice so that we can actually, through the exercise of our choice, we will earn our way into Lamhaba, earn our way into the eternal bliss of being able to be connected with, uh, with, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, the final thing that I would tell you is just one last uh, halacha in this last uh, minute or two. So Shochanach tells us that when we say the Hashem Elkeinu Hashem Echad, which is the ultimate statement of unity, that's the pledge of allegiance of the Jewish people, and it's the ultimate state of uh, 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 declaration of unity, the Hashem Echad. So Shochanach says that the word Echad is comprised of three letters, as everybody knows. There's an Aleph, a ches and a dollar. So the Aleph represents the one God, this numerical value of one, so it's the one God. Ches is the numerical value of eight, so that's the seven heavens and earth. That's the totality of the universe in a vertical sense, if we could say that the universe has a vertical uh, measure to it. And then we say the dollar is the four corners of the earth. So that's going to be the universe on a horizontal plane. So there's one God which is over the entire galaxy, vertically, horizontally, over the, over the entire thing. And Shulchan Aruch says specifically that when we say that word, Hashem Elkeinu Hashem Echad, right back in the day when they could go ahead and extend the Dalad, which is the, the way the Gemara says and the way Shulchan Aruch says that you're supposed to do, you're not supposed to extend the Ches, you're supposed to extend the Dalad, but the way we pronounce Dalad, it's impossible to extend its pronunciation. You can't duh any more than duh. It's just a staccato note, and it can't be anything more, more than that. But it's uh, but when you say that word and you're extending it, so what you're supposed to be thinking about is the acceptance of Ol Malchus Shemayim, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven upon the entire universe. Hashem is Echad, Aleph, he's one, seven heavens and earth, the four corners of the, of the universe, and Hashem is the Melech over all of those things. He is the unified God of, over all of those things. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter adds to this, he says it's essential to, uh, to, uh, to remember that what people sometimes do is they declare the unity of God over the entire universe, 
accept themselves. Because when it comes to my interests and what I want to do, well, God will understand if I don't do the mitzvah and God understands my circumstances, why I don't do this. And we end up rationalizing all sorts of things vis-a-vis ourselves, why God's dominion in his unity is not necessarily in force over our lives, but everywhere else in the universe, we want God to go ahead and we want him to be the echad over if, if God will be the God of the seven heavens, Givaldic, he could do whatever he wants. He could have dominion of the seven heavens, his heart's uh, delight. And if he wants to go to the four corners of the earth, if he wants to go, for us in the Midwest, it's easy. Sorry, Tzachi. But if he wants to go northeast and southeast and southwest and in, in, in northwest, if he wants to be in the four corners of the United States, he could be there all he wants. But here, where I am in the center, that we get sometimes a little bit uh, uncomfortable. So Yisrael reminds us, Yisrael Salata reminds us that as we're thinking about Hashem Echad, that Hashem is the king over the entire universe, we have to make sure that the Bishvili Nivra Olam, that we are, each one of us, is the center of our universe. And we have to make sure that the pivot of Hashem's existence everywhere in the universe ultimately pivots on us. And we have to be part of that, the acceptance as well. And that is, as we said, that is the, uh, the declaration uh, that we make of, of, of connection to God. The ultimate uh, uh, um, uh, declaration which we make is to, uh, to uh, connect with uh, God from that, uh, from that perspective and that, uh, that particular belief. Um, okay, the next part, there's, there's one last part to, to this. But I think we'll uh, we'll save it maybe for next week because it'll get us closer to there. Th- this part relates to the uh, the story of Yaakov seeing Yosef after all of those years. So it's not going to be all the way towards uh, in the, in that parsha. But as we get ourselves closer, so uh, I think it'll be a little bit more uh, meaningful. So we'll pick it up with the very end of the second principle uh, next week, together with the uh, then we'll start the Mirza Hashem the third principle as w- as well. Thank you, you Rabbi. Comments, thoughts. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. Everybody take care. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Have a fair Hanukkah. We'll see you, Mirza Hashem, Thursday. The, hopefully the class on Thursday is going to be, it's going to be really Benji and Bacha's uh, question, uh, which is that if you fly to Yisrael, or fly anywhere, if you fly overseas, normally you have to say Hagomel, and Hagomel should be said with a minion, following Kriya Torah. So what does one do when they are in Bidu, in when they're in quarantine? For yeah. two weeks, so how exactly do they go about saying uh, saying Hagomel? So since Hanukkah is a time of Hoda, and Birchas Hagomel is also a Hoda, so it seems to be a perfect fit as far as a, a good Thursday night uh, class is concerned. So that's going to be uh, Thursday night. Looking forward. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, stay safe. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody coming. Thank you.